I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our third floor Garrett studio by Erica Kaufman, author of a book of poems, Sensory Impulse, published by Factory School, and several other works, among them Instant Classic, included by Least Weasel in its chapbook series, Associate Director of the Institute for Writing and Thinking at Bard College, a veteran of various teaching outreach efforts, including the Rural Teacher Development Project, Believer in, as Jack Collin puts it, How to Use Poetry Everywhere, and with Julia Block, co-curator of the new teacher resource section within ModPo, a free online poetry course currently with 37,000 participants. And by the aforementioned Julia Block, a teacher, brilliant co-convener of poetry communities of all sorts, associate director of this very Kelly Writers House, fabulously talented editor, a widely published poet, author of post-psychiatric sonnets, and a series of letters to Kelly Clarkson, and of the forthcoming book of poems, Allison Corporation, to be published by Sidebrow, and who, along with Michael Hennessy, is the editor of Jacket 2 magazine. And by Bernadette Mayer, whose life of poetry communities is of such depth and importance as to defy any quickie intro like this, poet, editor, teacher, outreacher, activist, author of, among many works, Midwinter Day, a Bernadette Mayer reader, The Desire of Mothers to Please Others in Letters, Poetry State Forest, and more, who edited Zero to Nine with Vito Acconci, established United Artists Press with Louis Walsh, has taught at the New School and the Poetry Product, whose writing has been described as a series of patterns woven out of small actions confirming the notion that seeing what is, is a radical human gesture. Hello to all of you, Erica. Thanks for making the trip down from the Hudson Valley. Thanks for having me, How are things in the Hudson River Valley? They're great. Leaves are turning. It's fall. Yeah, that's quite a river. Julia, thank you for, you know, walking up a few steps. <laughs> Anytime. And Bernadette, it's so great to see you. Thank you for coming. Thanks for being at the writer's house. Thank you. <clears throat> so uh, today we've gathered to talk about James Schuyler's poem, February. It was published in his book, Freely Espousing, on page 15 of that book, to be precise, and republished in Selected Poems, page 6, and again in Collected Poems, page 4. In the Penn Sound Archive, you can hear two recordings of Schuyler reading this poem, first during a reading given at the Dia Art Foundation in November 1988, a reading introduced by John Ashbery, and the second performed at the San Francisco Art Institute during a reading sponsored by the Poetry Center at San Francisco State University in February 1989. We're going to hear the first of these, the 1988 reading, and in his beautiful introduction, Ashbery notes that as far as he knew, this was the first ever public reading given by Schuyler. So here now is James Schuyler reading February at the Dia Art Foundation in New York. February, a chimney breathing a little smoke. The sun I can't see making a bit of pink I can't quite see in the blue. The pink of five tulips at 5 p.m. on the day before March 1st. 
the green of the tulip stems and leaves, like something I can't remember, finding a jack in the pulpit a long time ago and far away. Why, it was December then, and the sun was on the sea by the temples we'd gone to see. One green wave moved in the violet sea like the UN building on big evenings, green and wet while the sky turns violet. A few almond trees had a few flowers, like a few snowflakes out of the blue looking pink and light. A gray hush in which the boxy trucks roll up 2nd Avenue into the sky. They're just going over the hill. The green leaves of the tulips on my desk, like grass light on, on flesh, and a green copper steeple and streaks of cloud beginning to glow. I can't get over how it all works in together, like a woman who just came to her window and stands there filling it, jogging her baby in her arms. She's so far off. Is it the light that makes the baby pink? I can see the little fists and the rocking horse motion of her breasts. It's getting grayer and gold and chilly. Two dog-sized lions face each other at the corners of a roof. It's the yellow dust inside the tulips. It's the shape of a tulip. It's the water in the drinking glass the tulips are in. It's a day like any other. So the poem ends with four lines that begin with the word it's. It is, it is, it is, it is. Um, what is it, Julia Block? I think in this poem, it's everything. I mean, he wonders later on in the poem, I, I can't get over how it all works in together. And it was at that moment that I thought, oh, all the it's in the beginning of the poem are, it's just this list. It's this list of ongoing detail, everything I see in my perimeter. Erica, does that, that sound perfectly right to you? Yeah, I, I had a similar experience reading. I began by thinking that the it was the landscape or the world, and then the it just kept holding more and more things, and then it became everything by the end of the poem. Bernadette, what's going on with all the colors in this poem? Oh, beautiful, right? Yeah, uh, lots um, of colors. A great James Schuyler effect. Which I've tried to imitate myself. Why, why imitate it? What's so great about it? Because it's that the I I often read this poem and think maybe it's because he knew so many painters, but it's it's so amazing to see a poem with a color in every line. Well, almost every line. Almost every line. Yeah. <clears throat> And I tried to imitate it by writing a poem called Very Strong February. <laughs> oh, really? And there's a color in every line. So for you, it was almost like a, an exercise or a constraint to try to do that. No, it's like old home week. <laughs> <laughs> because of the connection to Schuyler or New York or what? No, because of the colors. Mm. Like, that's the way you see things. So, Julia, what what do you think the effect of all those colors is? Mm, well, it kind of gives you some cues about what time of year it is. I mean, we hear that it's March 1st, but these are like 
colors of spring. It's the day before March 1st. Um, day before March 1st, right. Um, but then we're also remembering December and we're remembering the gray hush. Um, and so color marks time, but it also just continues to describe this place, but it also kind of gives us a sense of how the place is being perceived. I mean, gray hush is something you see, but also it's something you hear or more accurately don't hear. Um, because there's an absence of silence. To, so to describe it as gray, attaching a color to something in the, in the air is quite different. Can any of us, is anybody willing to say the, the obvious about February in New York not having a lot of color in it typically? I mean, is that, is that relevant, Erica? Yeah, I think so. So what's going on? I think he's going um, for contrast. Like he's almost making a list of these discrete images that exist outside of time and space but because of the title of the poem and because of other markers like roll up second avenue you know that you're in a specific place so there's this series of contradictory images that pile up so where do we get in this poem where do we get uh sometimes a scene that has color in it are there, are there any external scenes in which we actually have color? We have gray of the boxy truck, so that would be outdoors. But we have tulips on his desk, so that's indoors. That's his writing desk. In other words, I guess I'm asking, these colors are all around, but the actual landscape of New York in February is not going to have a lot of color, except for gray. And the green copper steeple. Um, and, and the UN building. Streaks of cloud beginning to glow. So there's light. There's light in the sky. Sunset. And that's making color. Um, it's getting grayer and gold and chilly. So it's like the gold is reflecting off of the buildings and the pieces of metal. So what, Bernadette, what's the, what do you think, I've already asked this before, but I'm curious to know more. What do you think the effect of all these colors in this New York poem is? What is he saying about life, daily life? Uh, well, when I said old home week, yeah, uh, it's a reference to infancy. I think James Scholar is saying, this is how you would see all this if you're an infant, you know? Yeah, so it's fresh seeing. Well, the colors are there. You just have to see them. What's I, the f I love the part of the pink and the blue and the sky. I mean, uh, little kids have this word for a color, sky blue pink. <laughs> so what's the um, feeling he's conveying when he says, I can't get over how it all works in together? Is that sort of what you're saying, that, ref that yeah. child? So how does it all work together, Julia? We don't know. That's like the argument of the poem. It's like, we don't know how it all works together. It's, it's tremendously mysterious. And then our eye goes to this woman standing in the window holding a baby. And so when he writes the woman who just came to her window and stands there filling it, so the it is the window, but it's also this this it of everything that we keep hearing about over and over again This in this poem. How does the simile work? Because it's not just our eyes shift to this. He's saying that this all coming together, this synthesis, is like that woman. I can't get over how it all works in together. Like a woman who just came to her window and stands there filling it, 
jogging her baby in her arms. She's so far off. Is it the light that makes the baby pink? I can see the little fists and the rocking horse motion of her breasts. It's getting grayer and gold and chilly. Two dog-sized lions face each other at the corners of a roof. It's the yellow dust inside the tulips. It's the shape of a tulip. It's the water in the drinking glass the tulips are in. It's a day like any other. So what do you like about the poem? Because you and I chose to do this one together. What do yeah. you love about it? Uh, the colors, mm-hmm. the feeling of the poem, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that James Schuyler does this beautiful, airy things, saying airy things about the weather. Hmm. Check out the last line. It's a day like any other. Yeah. What does he mean by that? No, absolutely. Well, it's what everybody says says all the time. <laughs> uh, he ends this other poem of his, See you later in other weather. <laughs> I mean, there are, such, there are such ordinary things to say, but when he says them, they're not ordinary at all. Yeah. I feel. Yeah. Um, someone described Schuyler's talent in, as follows. It's a distinct ability to take things that are normal and bring out their greatness. He takes a look at things that many people may not see or care to take note of. Does that make sense, Julia? Yeah, I think both of those things are happening here. There's so much that's really ordinary in the poem, but he keeps putting it in this new light and and these colors that we may not be able to see right away. Um, and then also bringing our eye to the things that we don't necessarily see, including things that we can't see, like the sun. You can't ever really see the sun. You can only see its after effects or it's, you know, what it's projecting onto us, onto the earth. Um, but we know it's there and we can write about it. Would anybody here say that this is, describe this as a nature poem? Yeah. Why Why not? Why not? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you might have to expand your idea of what nature is a little bit. To include what? To include New York City to include <laughs> in New February. York. This is a New York poem, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I well, mean, some of your audience might not know that when James Schuyler was uh, at a certain point in his life, he wasn't writing very much. So a lot of his friends, because they thought he was such a great writer, yeah, uh, encouraged him to write uh, poems, and he wound up writing poems about the weather. Just to have something to write about. Well, this might be one of those. Yeah, so this might be one. So this might be a way of um, getting past a block? Well, I don't think he wanted to, mm. but I think other people wanted him to. And, yeah. I really I like mean, that the, reading. But don't say block. Yeah. It because wasn't there's, a block. Right. <laughs> An alternative to that is just writing. Yeah. When he says it's getting grayer and gold and chilly, it there is the weather. That's the idiom we use for the weather. It's getting gray. Yeah. Mm. Then the last four lines repeat the it's as if it's just the weather, but it's more than that. So it could be simply a nature poem about describing the weather. 
But then, as Julia suggested, it's something more. Do you want to say again what the it's is at the very end? Well, it's in repeating the it's, I feel like the poem, it keeps swiveling its vision. You know, first we land on the yellow dust inside the tulips, and then we land on the shape of the tulip, and then we're swiveling over to the water in the drinking glass. And then we turn to the day itself. And so it's almost like the poem is asking a question. What, what is it? Not just how, how does it all work together, but what is it? How do we describe it? So maybe the poem is also wondering how to describe. February, a chimney breathing a little smoke. The sun I can't see making a bit of pink. I can't quite see in the blue. The pink of five tulips at 5 p.m. on the day before March 1st. The green of the tulip stems and leaves, like something I can't remember, finding a jack in the pulpit a long time ago and far away. Barbara Guest said of Schuyler, he withholds his secret, the secret thing, until the moment appears to reveal it. We wait and wait for the name of the flower, of a flower, She's not referring to this poem, actually. She's just speaking generally. We wait and wait for the name of a flower while we praise the careful cultivation. We wait for someone to speak, and it is, it is Jimmy in an aside. I love, what, I love that, but I don't quite understand what she means. Help me with that, anybody. You mean in an aside? You don't... Yeah, that part for one thing, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think... Uh... Maybe a casual reference, mm-hmm. not a direct. We wait for statement. someone to speak, and it's Jimmy in an aside. Yeah. Know? Do you sense that there's a secret here? Guess is talking about how this writer always withholds a secret. Is there a secret in this poem of any kind? Maybe that synthesis we were talking about. Well, going back to the idea of nature, I mean, I also notice how the similes work in the poem. He. He says, uh, one green wave moved in the violet sea like the UN building. <laughs> That's like the reverse of what we usually say. We usually yeah. say a building looks like the sea because yeah. we think of the sea as the original. So the nature and artifice get reversed. Yeah. So we heard him read this at the Dia Art Foundation, introduced by John Ashbury, and we recommend that people listen to the Penn Sound recording of Ashbury's introduction. What can anyone? What did it sound like hearing Schuyler read? It it's it was just so elegant. I think like he I noticed that he a lot of the lines end with um, periods, but he often would pause at the end of even lines that are enjammed. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, listening to him read heightened the sense that the one thing he does in his poems that I just love is you feel like you're getting access to something that's pretty private. Like you're yeah. you're watching this private reading of his own, of his own space, but the space he's describing is also space that's physical and somewhat public. And I almost felt like I could hear the private public stuff happening in his voice. Yeah, that's interesting. It, go, it goes along with what Barbara Guest was saying about his poems being about withholding secrets and with what John Ashbery says in his introduction, which is that this was the very first time, so far as John knew, that Schuyler was reading in public. So there's, it's, I found that very affecting. It does sort of sound like he's reading 
It very, sounds very intimate, that yeah. recording. Mm. It does. Well, you get paid a lot of money to read for the Dia Art Foundation. So that's important to mention. It is. In the history of this poem. Particularly because, as Ashbury said in the introduction, one of his reasons for not wanting to do public readings is that it would take him away from the work he wanted to do, his daily living, Mm -hmm. that he had to have exceptional reasons for doing that. Mm -hmm. Presumably this was some kind of important um, invitation. But Ashbery notes in his introduction that scholars somehow managed to draw on the whole arsenal of modernism from the minimalism of Dr. Williams to the gorgeous aberration of Wallace Stevens and the French Surrealists and still write in what Marianne Moore calls plain American, which cats and dogs can read. (laughs) Pick any of those, Williams, Stevens, Surrealists, or plain speech, and please talk about it in in connection with this poem. I mean, is there plain speech here? Do we get Marianne Moore's cats and dogs talk? Not really, right? Well, last line, definitely. Yeah, the last line, it's a day like any other. Uh, Williams or Stevens, anyone? Yeah, I see a lot of Williams here. I mean, when I think of plain speech, I also think of Williams, but when I think of details that seem to be ordinary and not having much importance, I also think of Williams. I think of the broken glass in the alley and the wilting flowers on the roadside. Mm-hmm. And here, just the idea that you're going back again and again to these this little bunch of tulips on the desk, they don't seem extraordinary in any way, but they're important enough to get described over and over again. And they again. Seem, a sign, seem to be a sign of spring in February, which is always, you know, hopeful. Also, the way he says that he couldn't, he can't see the sun. Right. I think it's a very illuminating thing for people to read or even learn to write. Yeah, and I also see And some, it's very ordinary speech. Yes, that certainly is. I can't quite see in the blue. Okay, we could talk about this poem and Skylar forever, but I wonder if we'll just go around, get final thoughts on the poem or on Skylar, what he's doing. So who wants to go first? Final thought, Julia? Um, I just really love the lines, is it the light that makes the baby pink? Because it's a really literal question. Like, is the baby really as pink as it looks? Or is there something, some quality of light that's making it look this pink? But it's also a bigger question about how we see things. Is what I see real? Is it, you know, how is my vision um, affecting how things appear? And and can I see things? Mm, thank you. Erica? I love the lines. I can't get over how it all works in together. And I feel like that also speaks to my experiencing of the poem and just what a really beautifully crafted poem this is. It's such a passionate statement, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's having a kind of revelation about this. Bernadette, final thought on this poem or on Skylar? Um, uh, what Erica just said about I can't get over how it all works together, it's like within this poem or in other works, uh, a new, a whole new concept of rhyme over and together mm-hmm. right i mean this is illuminating i think for beginning poets or for poets who aren't beginning yeah 
<clears throat> That's great. Thank you. And my final thought, I think, I really do think of this as a New York poem in so many ways. And when when he describes you at the UN building on big evenings, I just think, I don't know what quite what big evenings means, but you get the feeling that this is a big place and there's big things happening. Certainly in the 60s, the UN building st- still had that, like, people are going to get this worked out in that building somehow, you know, right? <laughs> that kind of, su- I mean, six, the 60s is a little late to have that idealism about the UN, but the UN bu- building on big evenings, green and wet, so it's like a Williams February March poem, like the cold spring and all, you know, the pulp and mess of the early spring is going to give way to birth and and new life. And you get all this green. He's more interested in the green stems of the tulips than somehow the pink tulips because the green is going to be life. And the UN building is somehow, on a big evening, going to suggest that kind of fecund wetness. I just think like, yeah, this is where life is going to be. I don't need to leave the city in order to get it. Well... Anyway, so we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really good, to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world who wants to gather paradise. Julia, you look like you're ready. Well, Bernadette, you said when you heard James Schuyler read, it was like being at the feet of a great and that's definitely the way I felt when I first heard you read and so my <laughs> my gathering paradise is about um one of your recent publications the Helens of Troy New York which was put out by New Directions poetry pamphlet series and it's a series of um portraits of women named Helen in upstate New York and I highly highly recommend it I love it as a revision of Helen of Troy um it's witty it's engaging it's the kind of poetry that I go to again and again. Nice. A, a gathering paradise of someone in the room. I love that. That's wonderful. <laughs> You've been gathered. <laughs> Erica, gather some paradise. Um, well, there are a couple of books that I'm super excited about, and I'll just pick two. One is um, Deep Code by John Coletti should be coming out from City Lights this spring. And I just read the manuscript and it's full of poems that I find to be super fantastic. And I think that John is a big fan of Schuyler and I see a lot of things that he does in this manuscript and this poem in terms of colors and line breaks and images and these moments. Nice. Mm-hmm. Bernadette, gather like some Paris. To- Recommend, I don't know if she qualifies, uh, she's not working now, Sorana de la Cruz, who is a 15th century Spanish poet, and I would encourage you all to read her. Can you tell us just a bit about what's so great about her? Uh, She's very direct and talks a lot about, you know, I mean, think of all her, read her poems, but think of them as being written by James Schuyler. <laughs> that, might, that might answer your question. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Thank you, Bernadette. Uh, and thank you all. Uh, my um, Gathering Paradise. Well, what I want to do is encourage all listeners to this poem talk to stop listening at the end 
and to go to your favorite search engine and to type into that search engine, Bernadette Mayer, Kelly Writer's House, October 2014. And likely when you do that, you will find a recording of a one-hour discussion that we had, actually this group, the four of us and a few others had earlier today. And at the very end of that, a wonderful, wonderful person called in by phone and asked Bernadette, uh, or really kind of said to Bernadette that she felt that it was important that before poets could write experimentally that they had to write, had to master the traditional forms. And asked Bernadette what she, whether that was a good thing to do. And Bernadette said, no. And, she, and then I like asked again. She said no. And then and then she and and we elaborated. And I won't, you know, I won't do a spoiler alert. Or this is a spoiler alert. I won't spoil it. But I hope you will listen to it because it's a wonderful. Julia, help me here. It's a wonderful conversation in which someone reasonably said, I think in order to write the kind of sonnets that we've been talking about, I should learn how to write a traditional sonnet. And Bernadette said passionately, you don't have to, and it somehow carried the day. Julia? Yeah, and I'm not going to spoil it, but, but Bernadette made some fabulous comments about specifically the sonnet Yeah, and what we think about the sonnet. Yeah, really great. So I hope everybody will uh, listen to that and watch it. It's also available in video. Well, that's all the gray hush of boxy Second Avenue trucks we have time for today on Poem Talk. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks to my guests, Julia Block, Erica Kaufman, and Bernadette Mayer, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardiner, and to Poem Talk's editor, Allison Harris. Next time on Poem Talk, I'll talk about two poems by Tyrone Williams with Tom Donovan, Alan Golding, and Herman Beavers. This is Al Philreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>